There's a question that's been on my mind this Christmas season. We talked about it a little bit at our family gathering last evening. The question is this. Why was Jesus' birth announced to and then spread by shepherds? I mean, you could have chosen anyone to be the birth announcer of Jesus, but the one who was there to spread the news of what the angel said were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And I thought of that as an interesting contrast when uh, Tabitha and I were uh, watching a documentary that um, showed a clip of the announcement of the birth of Prince Harry, the uh, one who's been in the news recently. Do we even call him Prince Harry anymore? I'm not sure after he's kind of left the, the royal family a little bit. But there was this amazing announcement. I mean, it was so perfectly British, right? This guy just decked out in the most amazing British clothing. I mean, like, the, like, a, like a costume, almost like those guys who do the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace, kind of one of those types of costumes comes out and in this just absolutely pristine British accent announces to everyone who was waiting there that Princess Diana had a boy and his name was Harry. You know, and, and there's just this, it, it was so perfectly British and so regal and so kingly, right? I mean, that's how kings, their birth should be announced. And why... Did God see fit to have angels appear to shepherds sitting out in a field, had no idea that this was coming, and then they were the ones who not only would go find the baby in Bethlehem, but then would go spread it to everyone else? Why shepherds? Well, I think here on this Christmas day, we can certainly have some speculation, but my view is that it ties back in to the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples here in Mark chapter 9. We've been going through the gospel of Mark together as a church now for many months. And I told you, I've told you the last several weeks as we got into December, every pastor needs to decide, am I going to pause the, the scripture passage series that I'm in or am I going to keep on going? And as I looked ahead at these passages, I realized these are Christmas passages even though they have nothing to do with the birth of Jesus Christ directly, they have everything to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. We've been looking together over the last several weeks, for example, about how Jesus has, has, um, has had the transfiguration. He's been transfigured before them and he's been revealed to be the beloved son of God in all his glory unveiled. And we contrast that to his glory veiled at Christmas in his incarnation, a humble birth in a stable being placed in a manger. We saw, uh, we saw uh, bef- uh, after that, we saw his uh, disciples struggling here down below the mountain trying to heal a boy who was demonically oppressed. And we see Jesus stepping in and teaching a lesson 
on faith, who, what they needed to see in who Jesus was and who his power was. We saw last week the fact that Jesus came to be delivered into the hands of men, that the Christmas story is pointing ahead into the rest of the story that he needed to be killed as a sacrifice for our sins, only to rise from the dead. And now notice in verse 33 together here in chapter 9, we learn that Jesus came to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? What were you arguing about? Now, isn't it interesting, kids? Your parents know when you're bickering and arguing. I hear it in the back of my minivan all the time. Believe me, I'll tell my kids that. Jesus heard them arguing. He heard them bickering, and he asks them. And verse 34 tells us they held their peace. They were quiet. Now, why were they quiet? Because they were guilty. That's why. They were embarrassed. They didn't intend for Jesus to be overhearing their conversation because they knew enough of him by now that he would not like it. And sure enough, he didn't. He didn't like what they were arguing about. Why? Because by the way, they had been disputing among themselves. They had been arguing about who should be the greatest. We'll get to that in just a minute. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them, right in the middle. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. I want us to focus this morning on one little phrase that Jesus makes here. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. This is a Christmas passage because ultimately Christmas is about Jesus being a servant of all. The title of our message this morning is simply that, Servant of All. It connects not only to what our calling is as Christians, it calls into mind what Jesus is holding before us this Christmas day and on each day that follows the need to be servant of all. I want us to see, first of all here, what I'm going to call a common interest in this passage. A common interest. It is one that the disciples are in and that if we were being honest with ourselves, I think we would see in ourselves. Now, noticing this argument that the disciples are having, there's something that appears at first blush very surprising. It's that they should be arguing about who should be the greatest. Who would be number one? Now, the reason it seems surprising is because Jesus has just been telling them that he's going to die, that he's going to be betrayed, that his kingdom is going to involve shame and humiliation and rejection, and yet his disciples clearly don't get it because their reaction is, well, where do I get to be in this kingdom that's coming? In fact, so deeply ingrained was this in their DNA that only one chapter later, we'll look at this in, in several weeks, two of his disciples come to him and say, when you're coming in your kingdom, who gets to be on your right hand and who gets to be on your left hand? Who get to be your two dominant associates? And it's just like Jesus, again, is just putting his face in his palm and saying, you still don't get it? I mean, this is so ingrained in their DNA. And before we decide to run up to the balcony and kind of look down at them, look down our noses at them, 
we'd have to look at ourselves. How often are we motivated by the same kinds of considerations? It's the human idea of ambition, a drive for something in the future that we are pursuing. And ambition, we oftentimes have a negative view in our mind of ambition. What is ambition? But really the heart of ambition, of a wrong kind of ambition, is centered around two things. One, our ambition, our desire to be great is corrupted by the fact that we actually just want to be seen as great. There's a difference between being great and being seen as great. And the disciples, notice, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. It wasn't just pride. It was the desire that others would recognize who was the greatest. I mean, again, think about it. If they just wanted to be the greatest, they could have just been thinking about that. And saying, well, I'm going to be the greatest because I'm better than Peter and I'm better than that guy. And do you see how weak that guy is? No, they needed to discuss it among themselves as if they wanted the consensus that, yes, I, I am going to be the greatest. We want to be seen as great. Now, how true is that for even one of us, if every one of us, if we were just being honest? How often, even in our moments when we think we're showing humility and we're serving others, do we actually know part of us is looking around to see who's watching? The Pharisees were the masters at this. Jesus Jesus said, when you go pray, you go on the street corners and you want everyone to know how you pray. When you fast, when you do religious ritual, you make sure everyone knows how spiritual you're being. And when you give generously to others, you put a trumpet to to be sounded in front of you so everyone looks. And you say, well, I don't do that. But really, honestly, how often do we serve others? And in our back of our minds, we say, I kind of hope some people are watching. We desire to be seen as great. But not only do we desire to be seen by others, we desire to be superior to others. Notice here, they wanted not only to be discussing this issue, they were no doubt arguing that there was some qualification that would leapfrog them over someone else. How natural is this? To our human condition. Jesus again pegged this in the Pharisees. He said when you go to a dinner. You want to make sure that you're at the head table. You want to be above those who are called to the table around you. And again this is so often ingrained into our DNA. How many children around the world today. Are opening their presents under the tree. And they've got one eye on their present. And one eye on how many presents their brother got. One eye on how cool the stuff they got was, and one eye on, did my sister get more than I did, or or something cooler than I did? I mean, how many of us have been in the workplace situation where we don't get a promotion, and the next thing we're looking at is, did my coworker, did they get elevated above me? Or there is a bonus coming out and we're wondering how did my bonus stack up to other people's bonuses? We think about the grade that we got and wonder did someone else get a better grade? Where do I rank in the class? 
this part, again, is so embaked into our human DNA. It is the desire to be seen by others as great and desire to be superior to others in our comparison mentality. And here, the disciples were manifesting both of them to a T, bickering and arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus now is going to call them on it. He's going to call them on it, and he's going to look, secondly, we're going to look at a Christian inversion. An inversion just means a flip. It just means a complete opposite. And notice what he says. As they're embarrassed, he sits down. Now, why does he sit down? The commentators tell us that rabbis, when they were ready to teach, they sat down as if to say, I'm going to show each of you something. This was Jesus not merely making a kind of comment along the way, like a, hey guys, here's a good thing to keep in mind. No, he sat down to say, you guys need to learn something. I have something very serious to tell you right now about the way you've been acting and speaking. And he called the 12, and notice what he says. If any man desire to be first, if any man wants to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. I want you to think about those words for just a minute because there are two ways we could take them. One way to take them would be that Jesus is criticizing ambition. Here's one way that you could take this. Jesus is saying, if you want to be first, that's bad. And because you want to be first, you're going to end up being the last and the servant of all. It's going to be like a punishment. You wanted to be first, aha, you now are going to be last and you get to serve everyone else. That's one one way you could interpret it. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that what he is saying is he's actually not criticizing greatness. He's not criticizing the desire to be useful to be great. He's not criticizing ambition. What I think he's saying is this. If you desire to be first, the same shall be, or the idea is you are to be, you must be last and servant of all. He's not saying don't desire to be, to be great in God's sight. He's saying you need to understand the actual path to get there. The path to get there is not being seen by others to be great and being superior to others in your own view. The path to being great in my sight is the path of being last and of being servant of all. You see, Jesus never viewed being servant of all as being some kind of punishment Like, oh, you're getting ambitious again. Looks like you're going to have to get a little discipline. Go start serving other people. No. To Jesus, service is the highest form of greatness. Do you want to be great? Be a servant. Do you want to be great? Be last, not first. Now, notice what is the very essence of being last. When you are last, you are making sure that everyone else is being taken care of before you are. Your needs are what is ultimately taking up the rear. And everyone else's needs are beyond your own. Now notice here when Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, if you want to be great in my eyes, you must be last. He's speaking of humility. 
He's saying no longer is the viewpoint that you are taking. It's no longer whether you are going to be seen to be great by other people. He's saying, no, you're not going to care if everyone sees you as the absolute dust on their feet. You're not going to care if you are seen to be last by everyone around you. Because that's just not your priority. That's just not your prism that you're viewing life through. So notice how he's attacking our human pride. He's attacking our desire, our vanity, to be seen to be something that we wish to be. But also here's where we need to add the second part of what he says. He doesn't just say you need to be last. He said you need to be servant of all. Now this is important. Because there would be one way to look at what Jesus is saying is, is this. Well, Jesus is saying if you want to be great, just humble yourself, be like a worm on the ground, get just walked over, and ultimately, you know, it's like that idea of I, 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 no, everyone lo- hates me, no one loves me, guess I'm just going to go eat worms. Woe is me, I'm last, but I'm fine with that, and this is just going to be the way it is. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're not being last merely as a form of look at how humble I am. You are being last so that you can be ambitiously serving everyone. You see that? You are last of all and you are servant of all. You are last so you say everyone else go first. And you are last so that you can say and let me help you get there. Let me help you get to what your needs are being met. You're last of all. You're humble. You're not vain. You're servant of all. You're actually driven. You see, this is why I'm convinced that Jesus has nothing to say here about ambition. He is just simply talking about our natural DNA, which is self-centered ambition, selfish ambition, ambition that puts me first and others behind. Jesus is speaking of a kind of ambition that says, I want to serve other people. I don't just want to serve other people. I want to serve everybody. I want to be great, truly great, in God's eyes. And therefore, I'm willing to be last of all, and I'm willing to be servant of all. What an amazing statement Jesus makes here. What an amazing, complete inversion of the way that humanity looks at what greatness is, at what success is, being seen to be a particular way, and then being superior in the way our lives are worked out. Jesus says, it is completely backward. It is completely opposite in my economy. Now notice what he says next in verse 36. And he took a child... And set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children, children like this, in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. Now what's he saying here? Well, who is this child? This word child that Jesus is, that is used here in scripture could mean anyone from very infant, an infant child, up to someone who is, say, 12 years old or so. This same word is used just a couple ch- a chapter or so bego- ago when Jesus healed a girl who was 12. She was referred to as a child, like, like this word is used. And so 
Jesus, we don't know exactly how old this child was, but it's clearly a child who was old enough to toddle around because Jesus took him. He didn't, like, take him out of the arms of his mom. And then he was small enough that Jesus could pick up. So to me, I'm kind of thinking three, four, five, maybe six. I mean, just think of that, of someone in that kind of age range. And Jesus takes that child and he picks that child up and holds him. And it's, he's got an object lesson. He's pointing to that child and he's saying, I want you to know that if you receive a child like this, you're receiving me. And if you receive me, you're receiving him that sent me. Now, just, I just want to, to, to try to c- communicate to you for just a moment here how special it is what he's saying. That word receive is the idea of welcome. It's like you're throwing a welcome mat out for someone. When you throw a welcome mat out, Jesus is saying, for someone, a child like this, You are throwing out a welcome mat for me. You are welcoming me. Pause on that for a moment. On Christmas Day, what better thing could you hope for today than to welcome Jesus, to receive Jesus in his person? And in receiving him, you are receiving God himself. Every time you receive You welcome, Jesus says, a child like this. Now, what is Jesus actually saying here? What is Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples? Well, here in context, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? What were children, and how were they respected in first century Judea? That's one way you can answer that question. One commentator tells us that to the rabbis, they didn't even think it was worth teaching a child the Torah, formally teaching the child, until they were 12 years old. Because children in that day just didn't have a lot of value, frankly. And we can understand, at least from some perspective, so many children died. The child mortality rate of that day was was absolutely far, far greater, multiplied over the child mortality rate of our day. They just, frankly, didn't always get that connected to their children. And even in the Roman and the Greek societies, the parents of those children held just a complete, absolute authority over them. There's some, actually, evidence in Roman law that, that the father could just kill the child if he wanted. Child, the parent had absolute, sovereign, complete authority over the life of the child. And so a child would never be held up as something of value, of something to be prized and honored. And no rabbi would be, would be held up in esteem because he had a big following of kids. No one would ever get there by being seen in their popularity with children. And so this alone would have been radical, that a rabbi would have stooped to a child's level, a young child's level, and said, here's the one that, here's where my value is being placed in children, and can we say in childlike people? You remember what Jesus said in the parallel passage here in Matthew chapter 18, when he said, that except you be converted and become like this little child, you won't even get into the children, kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of heaven is only for those who will humble themselves like the smallest of children, completely non-possessing, completely uh, 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 recognizing their own weakness, their own fallibility, their own inability to meet their needs, completely dependent on the adults in their life to provide for them and to care for them. And Jesus says, unless your relationship with your Father in heaven, coming to him in complete recognition of your inability to meet your sin problem and to meet your uh, uh, your spiritual needs, you're not even going to get into heaven unless you become like this little child. So we can look at what Jesus is saying here, not only as the value of what a little child is in his sight, but also the character of that little child in having the kind of humility and dependence and recognition of one's own inability for all of us. And Jesus says, when you receive a little child like this, you are actually receiving me. Now stop there for just a moment. Notice how he's attacking both aspects of selfish ambition. The selfish ambition that says, I want to be seen by others. Jesus says, no, no, no. I know no one is getting popular by their care for children, but that's where my heart is. Go love and throw a welcome mat out for those who are left behind and who are despised in society and those who are on the wayside. And you, may, what you will lack in, in earthly popularity, you'll gain in receiving me because that's where I am. But also he's attacking the kind of prideful ambition that wants to be superior to others, that wants to be elevated above others in sophistication and prestige and authority and power. He said, look at this little child. That child has no prestige. That child has no authority. That child has no ability to pay you back. And that's why you go serve that child. Do you remember what Jesus said in the book of Luke? He saw how they called out the people who would pay them back. They invited people over to their house who in turn would invite them back and they'd receive a recompense. Jesus says, not you. He said, when you throw a feast, you call those who are poor. You call those who are lame. You call those who have other kinds of disability or hardship and they will never be able to pay you back. And he says, but you will have your reward. At the, day, at the last day. You will be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. That's when your payback will be. Why? Because my heart, Jesus says, is with those who are humble, with those who are like little children. And when you give yourself humbly with no selfish ambition to those, you are receiving me because you're manifesting my character and reflecting what I came to earth to do. Let's just pause for a moment, friends. This is the great joy of my heart that for over 40 years, this church has been dedicated to pursuing and seeking out little children in the name of Jesus Christ to show his love to them. 
And I want to say to each one of you who have been laboring so selflessly and so sacrificially in the children's ministry at this church, going out on buses and bringing children in from this community, children who will never pay you back in this life, children who will never repay the investment that you have made week after week after week after week in their life. Can I say that, Juan, based on Jesus' words, the whole time you've been receiving Jesus and you've been receiving his Father. You know, as we look ahead to a new year of ministry and of service together here at Straight Gate, I just want to invite you to just have a new perspective that each time those blue buses roll up to that church and children stream into this church, that you would just see every one of them as they come in with their little faces ready for another day of Sunday school, that you would just see Jesus' face superimposed on them. And that every act of service, every kind of investment that you make in them, you just see Jesus superimposed on them. That your investment, that your receiving is actually of him. What a glorious calling. What a wonderful opportunity we have to receive Jesus together as a church body in this community that he has called us to serve. But not only that, friends. This is something for a calling for all of life. It's a calling for all of us who are married. Do you want to grow in your marriage relationship in this upcoming year? Lay aside your selfish ambition and start serving each other. Be last. Be servant in every way that you can find. Be a servant. Parents and children, look for ways to serve each other. Look for ways to subjugate your needs, to put your needs last and, and to mutually put the needs of one another first. In our church body here, this is in every way the scriptural ideal. Do you remember Philippians 2? Turn over just for a moment to Philippians 2 because Paul here puts such a wonderful reminder to us. Philippians chapter 2. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, fulfill my joy. Make my joy come to pass that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord in complete harmony of one mind. Now listen to this in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. You could say selfish ambition. Now think about that word strife. Let nothing be done through strife. Let nothing be done by trying to be superior to someone else. Let nothing be done by the kind of bickering that was motivated by pride and vanity. And let nothing be done through this kind of vanity, this kind of selfish ambition that desires to be seen by other people. How are we going to live together in harmony as a church in this new year? We're going to be putting into place exactly what Jesus has said and living out. Let nothing be done through this kind of strife or selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, in this humility, let each esteem or think other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the Christian calling. It's the Christian inversion. And ultimately, where I'd like to close this morning is by talking very briefly and thirdly about a Christmas illustration. 
a Christmas illustration. Notice what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, not something to be held on to, not to be clung to, but made himself of no reputation, literally emptied himself. That's literally what that idea is. He emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He went even lower and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you see, friends, that in this Christmas season, it was all about Jesus being last of all and a servant of all? That our entire Christmas story is about Jesus, God who became flesh, coming down to the very lowest rung of the ladder with no monetary resources, with a, a birth that was cloaked in shame from the community, a, 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 a relationship with, with those who he came to save that was a posture of rejection and rebellion. Notice this is exactly the Christmas message. Remember the question that I started with this morning. Why shepherds? Why was the Christmas message, the Christmas announcement sent through shepherds? And I think at least one answer is this. It was because the shepherds were at the bottom rung of society. Because the shepherds were the poor. Because the shepherds were the ones who had a lowly position. And in them, God elevating them to proclaim the birth of his son was so fitting with what Jesus came to do, which was to come to the bottommost rung and elevate everyone who was above him. He came to be servant of all. And friends, this Christmas season, I would ask you to soberly examine yourself. To say, where is in your heart and in my heart that desire to be seen by others as being great? To be superior to others in my greatness? And in what ways is Jesus, in his example at this Christmas season, calling you to lay aside your selfish ambition, but to take on a new kind of ambition, a servant ambition, and ambition with all of the resources that he has given you today and in the days ahead, to take those resources and devote them, yes, ambitiously to the service of others and in, in the process to the service and the reception of him. Friends, Jesus came to be the servant of all, and he calls us to follow him in the same steps.